You know, there's something about an island. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, the ones we're sailing to are unforgettable. This island is paradise. It has rainforest. It has enormous ferns twice as big as I am. It's trees that are 200 feet tall and are trunks wider than redwoods. Ferenc Mate tells us how he was dazzled by the beauty of St. Vincent and the Grenadines in the West Indies. Sarah Turnbull learned the value of decorating with bright colors from her Polynesian neighbors in tropical Tahiti. And she would make a patchwork of color and put it over our old faded sofa and stand back and say, it looks happier now, doesn't it? And Andoik takes your calls to help plan island hopping excursions into the inner and outer Hebrides off the northwest coast of Scotland. It's definitely the most scenic part of the UK. Fantastic for serious hikers. Connect with some great island getaways in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Even though most of its residents don't make much money, they say if you live on one of the 32 islands that comprise St. Vincent and the Grenadines, you're living in the most blessed part of the Caribbean. Coming up in a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves, Ferenc Mate explains how the islands of Eden really are a kind of paradise on Earth. And author Sarah Turnbull tells us what it was like to move with her husband from Paris to Tahiti to start their family. Let's start our island hopping in a cooler climate where Scots Gaelic is still commonly spoken. Ancient stone circles guard their mysteries, and the scenery, wildlife, and salt air conspire to wake up your senses. Anne Doig's one of our favorite guides to Scotland, and she's here to take your calls at 877-333-7425 to help us navigate our way around the Hebrides, the islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. Anne, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And how would you describe the Hebrides? What is it like? Well, it's an archipelago of islands, and in a nutshell, you could describe them a little bit like malt whiskies, because Scottish malt whiskies are all made up of the same components, malted barley, yeast, water, and a lot of thyme. All the islands share a similar history. They were settled very, very early. There's ancient monuments there. Then the early Celtic priests came like St. Columba, and then they became part of a great sea kingdom, ruled from Norway to the Isle of Man. It was a kingdom separate from Scotland. So a lot of the place names are Viking names along with a mixture of the Celtic-Irish. But they're all different. So they've got this, this shared history. They've all got different characteristics. Hmm. Some of them are quite low-lying. Some of them are mountainous. And some of them are visited a lot by people and some of them aren't. Like different Scotch whiskies have their personality. The different mm-hmm. Hebrides Islands have, have their, their personalities. Personality. Yeah. It's basically the far northwest West. of the British Isles, Off the right? seaboard of uh, the northwest of very Britain. Very rugged, uh, very rugged. sparsely populated. Yeah, very sparsely populated. So what would the major islands be and what would their personalities be? Well, the major islands for visitors are the island of Mull and the island of Skye because they're more accessible. Mm-hmm. And for Skye, it's scenery. I mean, mm. it, it's definitely the most scenic part of the UK. Fantastic for serious hikers. Mull is very popular with tourists looking for seabirds, sea eagles. They've reintroduced all our birds of prey. And it's also on the route to the island of Iona, which is a pilgrimage site because it was where Christianity was really spread throughout Scotland by Columba in the 6th century. So they're two of the most popular islands. Mm -hmm. If you want to get off the beaten track, there are wonderful islands that are wild. So even the remote islands, they do have ferry service? They do, yes, especially in the summer months. This is Travel with Rick Steves. As we do every week for an hour, we're getting out and exploring an interesting part of the world. Today we're joined by Anne Doig who's a Scottish tour guide, taking us to the far fringes of Scotland, the Hebrides Islands. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jeff is on the line from Hickory in North Carolina. Jeff, thanks for your call. Sure. How are you today? Great. Well, my wife and I are going to Scotland for about a little over two weeks, and we're going to go up to the uh, Orkneys. But when we finish there, we're going to drive over to Ullapool and then take the ferry over to Lewis and Harris. And I'd Mm -hmm. be interested in knowing you know, what would be the best use of our time to uh, spend in that area. After that, we're going to go on to Sky and then down into Iona eventually. So just so people uh, can get the bearings, as Anne was saying, the Isle of Skye, the Isle of Mull, and Iona, those are the most touristic ones, but Lewis and Harris is the biggest. I I believe it's after Ireland and Britain itself, it's the, the third biggest island in the British Isles. What about Lewis and Harris? Well, he started off with Orkney, and that's kind of important because uh, we call them the Northern Isles. They're not part of the 
Hebridean Archipelago, which is mm. the west, they're immediately north of the top of Scotland. Worth visiting, it's an outdoor archaeological museum. There's a, a complete intact Stone Age village. Really? On the Orkneys? On Orkney. It's called Scarabree. Stone Age? Stone Age, 5,000 years ago. 5,000? That's as old as Stonehenge? Yeah. Yeah, it's older. No. It's older than Stonehenge. Stone. And this is sort of halfway to Norway geologically and culturally. Yes. They only became part of Scotland in about 1450. They really consider themselves more Scandinavian. Orkney, <laughs> okay. Well, Jeff, it sounds like you know what you're going to do on, on the Orkneys, but you're curious about Lewis and Harris, right? Yes, well, right. the scenery in Lewis, I have to say, is a bit like a lunar landscape. It's very, very wild. But there are wonderful archaeological sites there too, the Standing Stones of Kalanesh. And that's worth a trip. And there's also a broch, a round broch. It's a Stone Age fortress. But Harris, for me, is the most scenically beautiful. There's a place called Proctopole, where you see them weaving the Harris Tweed, which is world famous. Oh, Harris Tweed, Tweed. comes from Harris, Harris Island. The island. Actually, Lewis it. and Harris are one island. Right, yes. okay. <laughs> Lewis and Harris. So you don't have Lewis Tweed, but you got Harris Tweed. But it has to be woven in the crofter's cottage. So that's difficult to see because it's their houses. But there is one place on Harris where you can see it and you can buy the Harris and product. And what is that place? Proctopole. 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 And then the east side of the island is really rocky and there's a road that you can go down. It's called the Golden Road. It was where they used to take their burials mm-hmm. because the west side is sandy. So they had to bury their dead on the west side. The west side of where the fantastic beaches are, just amazing. And these are desolate and they, they desolate. just go forever. It's yes. just like you and the Harris. ocean and these yes. gorgeous beaches. Nothing till Nova Scotia. My goodness. Well, well, but the it's windy. Be, uh, rain, rain punctuated by days of sunshine. Exactly. As Billy Connolly said, a dog lifts its leg on Harris and somebody goes, on Norway. <laughs> the wind. How <laughs> 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 do you get it? <laughs> lots of wind, lots, lots of rain, of <laughs> and, uh, and uh, people in Norway got to cover their faces. Thanks for your call, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> We're exploring the Scottish Hebrides with Blue Badge Guide and Doig right now on Travel with Rick Steves and with your calls at 877-333-RICK. Penelope's on the line in Nampa, Idaho. Hi, Penelope. Do you have a comment for Anne about the Hebrides? I do. I was on a tour that did Scotland and the Highlands and went to the Hebrides just briefly. We, we started our trip out there at Oban, wonderful Scotch, took the ferry with our tour bus, and then the tour bus went across the Isle of Mole. And it was a one-lane road, so you're always looking ahead. And then when we got to the jumping-off point, we went over to Iona. And on the tour, they told us this marvelous story about when St. Columba and his monks came to uh, evangelize, and they landed in, on Iona, and it was already populated with cattle. And his saying, which is held to this day, is where there's cattle, there's women, and when, where there's women, there's mischief. And so he banished the cattle and the women who were herding the cattle to another deserted island not that far away so that his monks would not be distracted from what their intended purpose was there in Scotland. Oh, boy. And there's still a sort of a special, unique ambiance, uh, uh, sort of a holy atmosphere on Iona. And my experience is on that bus across Mull, there's always, it's always driven by like a local farm boy who's just full of funny stories. Is that a standard part of the ride? Yes, yeah. They it's love just doing great, that, isn't the it? locals. And can you tell us a little bit more about Iona? Because that really is an amazing place. Yes, it's very special because it's, it is very remote. Obviously, you can get there now with modern transportation, And it always amazes me because when you come off that little ferry, everyone just disappears. It doesn't feel as if you're you're crowded because the island's really tiny. It was important in our story of Scotland. This is where Christianity came from. It was because it was where Columba landed and with his monks, he went up the sea lochs and Christianized Scotland. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's very little left of that early Celtic community, but it was... uh, zenith of Celtic crafts at the time in the 6th century. It was 563 he landed because the Book of Kells was crafted there. 563, that was 1,500 years ago. Amazing. Penelope, thanks for your call. Thank you. Janet's calling in from Cincinnati in Ohio. Hi, Janet. Hi, Rick. We had the luxury last summer of spending seven weeks in Scotland. Mm, And it was a wonderful trip, but clearly not long enough. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, two of those weeks were on the Isle of Lismore, which is a small island 10 miles long and one mile wide mm -hmm. that's about a 45-minute ferry ride from Oban. And we just rented a self-catering cottage. We had no transportation, so we walked everywhere we went until we started meeting the locals, and they picked us up and took us places and invited us to their homes for lunches and dinners, and we became completely integrated in two weeks. We went to the garden party at the primary school, and we took a Scottish country dance lesson, and we helped shear the sheep, and just everything you can imagine. It was absolutely fabulous. But I'm wondering if you might be able to suggest some other places we could go. Well, one of my favorites is the island of Jura, which people don't hear about it so much because of its more famous neighbor, Isla, which has all the famous, very heavily peated malt whiskies like Laphroaig, Bunahaven, etc. But there's a distillery on Jura. For me, you could cycle there huge mountains, sea all around you, and you get this feeling of really wildness, mm. and yet it's quite easy to get to from the mainland. You're not far from the mainland. That sounds perfect. What's the name again? Jura, J-U-R-A. So lots of great islands to see as a, a jumping-off point from the mainland and, and the hectic sightseeing. Janet, thanks for your call, and that's quite an inspirational uh, experience you had. The more remote and the more involved and connected with the people, the better. That's the yes. complete story right there. Good job, exactly. Janet. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye now. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with tour guide Anne Doig about the Hebrides Islands on the far northwest of Scotland. Anne, it just sounds so intriguing and, and such a great place for a, an actual vacation where you can just settle in. Is there one island that we've yet to talk about that would be a particularly romantic and, and poetic kind of place that we want to be sure to cap this discussion with and factor into our thinking when it comes to touring the Hebrides? Well, I would have to say the island of Skye, because of the scenery there, the hills are slightly different because they stuck up after the last ice age, so they're razor sharp. But you've also got hills that were under the ice age. You've got all the different environments in a reasonably small island, and it means the island of mists or the cloudy island. Well, that's what that means, the yeah, island the of misty. sky. And it, it just changes all the time, and it is very romantic and very remote. If you get up into the hills there, it's fantastic. Rabbits running around in ruined castles. And ruined castles, a distillery. It's got everything you want. It's got everything you want, yes. Little craft shops, and you can have rented cottages. But for me, the scenery, I just love the hills on Sky, mm. Coolin. Mm. And you can get really remote there. There's a little boat trip will take you to Loch Karusk, which means cauldron, the volcanic hills just come up immediately from the water and you're in this cauldron miles away from anywhere. It's beautiful. And Doig, a lot of us are dreaming about Scotland and right now a lot more of us are dreaming about specifically the Hebrides, the islands on the northwest of Scotland. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll hear what it's like to move across the world to start a family in Tahiti in just a bit. But first... Ference Mate takes us into the Caribbean, where he's dropped anchor in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. The pace of life, the brilliant light and colors combine to inspire him to create a beautiful photo book called Islands of Eden. We'll explore that next on Travel with Rick Steves. Ference Mate has been able to make a number of his dreams come true. He fled a communist crackdown in his native Hungary as a youth, lived aboard a houseboat he built as a college student in Vancouver, and a few years ago he and his family turned a ruined 13th century friary in Tuscany into their dream home, complete with vineyards that produce some of the world's best Brunello wines. 
Ference has shared his formula for living a good life with us in several occasions over the past few years on Travel with Rick Steves, and he's still traveling. He's recently sailed in the Caribbean and joins us now to tell us what made it hard for him to leave the former British colony of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which incidentally just celebrated 35 years as an independent nation. Ference. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back again, Rick. It's really fun to be here. Now, you're a sailor, and suddenly you drop the hook and have a hard time taking it up at St. Vincent's and the Grenadines. What was so um, enthralling about St. Vincent and the Grenadines compared to the rest of the Caribbean? Well, it's very simple. Uh, It's such a mountainous country. Well, first of all, the country is made up of 32 little islands. Ten of them inhabited, the rest void of any population. But all the islands are volcanic, and they're so steep that they have, through all these years, have never managed to build an international airport. Yeah. This wasn't a flat area. I mean, St. Vincent, the big island, is a mile shorter than uh, Manhattan, yet it takes you two hours on a windy, hilly, almost like a, a snaking road to get from the top to the bottom. So they have been isolated. So this whole country of only about 100,000 people is really back in time. Like the Caribbean was about 40 years ago before mass tourism. And also, it's a windward island country. It's interesting, though. The country is 37 miles long, and most of it is water. You know, it's these specks of little land. Now, when you say windward, Ferenc, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, the Caribbean is sort of, the islands are sort of L-shaped. There's a horizontal part that goes from from Cuba to Antigua, or the lateral part that runs along the latitude. And then the part that goes... So a string going uh, east and west. Yes. And then the one that goes north north and south, and you get Martinique. Okay, those are the windwards? St. Lucia, those are the windwards. And and that ends in Tobago. I don't know if Tobago really qualifies or not. So they they absorb more of the wind coming off of the Atlantic, is that the idea? Yes, which is wonderful, because even though it's tropical, and the temperature is average about 85 degrees during... uh, the day, and it cascades all the way down to 78 at night, so your, your entire wardrobe is a, one pair of shorts and, and a t-shirt, you know. If you're a horse, actually one of those clothes horse type people, you can put on sandals if you're going dressy, but other than that, it's just fabulous face. Anyway, so what we have, being windward, it gets breeze, so it's very fresh all the time. It feels nice. You don't need air conditioning anywhere. Mm. But also, it gets rain. The biggest um, mountain is, is 4,000 feet high. It's a volcano. And that catches all the clouds, which means you have fabulous amounts of rain. I mean, so in I, the sense I envision, of agriculture. I envision waterfalls and rainforests. And, oh, and absolutely! Flowers. You don't associate that with the Caribbean. You think you know the leeward part is always sort of dry and cactusy, you know. But uh. this this island is is paradise. It really has rainforests. It has enormous ferns, twice as big as I am. It's trees that are two hundred feet tall and a trunks wider than redwoods, you know parrots and now, lizards now, and stuff. Now, as we were uh, preparing for the interview, you said you're experiencing a, a kind of a culture shock because you're you're back in a concrete world. <laughs> Talk more about that, the contrast that you're feeling right now. Well, the color, the color is it's not just a natural color. It's okay. You have this fabulous colored Atlantic and this sort of milder color Caribbean. And the reefs are stunning. There's a part of the country called Tobago Keys, which is very, it's a national park, and it's made up of about six little tiny islands and a coral reef around it. And and the shoals, the, the colors and the shapes of the coral heads and great turtles just under the surface. It's so, I don't know, it's sort of very fulfilling emotionally, you know, just to, just to wake up in the morning and look outside. And apart from that, okay, getting back to the climate, with this jungle climate, People can grow everything, okay? I mean, the soil is excellent because it's, it's volcanic and it's deep. They have every vegetable you can imagine. Uh, Talk about that. What, what, what are some of the vegetables that we can go through our whole lives here in, in the United States and never really appreciate? And then you go to a little tiny country of 100,000 people 30 miles across or something uh, down on the windward side of the Caribbean, and you, you discover, like, whoa, you know, and our, our planet is blessed with this, and we never even eat it. It's, yeah, we have sweet potatoes, obviously, like, but cassava and dashin and yams and fruits like papayas, mangoes, coconuts, pineapples, and passion fruit. And, and there's a thing called, I don't know what it's called, a star-shaped thing, but right. different flavors. And it grows half wild, you know, it's, it's just abundance, it's enormous. You said the main town is Kingston. It's probably just, it feels like yeah, a provincial little town. You go to Kingston, and unless the cruise ship comes in once, like once a week, you might end up the only white person in town mm-hmm. because it's just not that touristy. It's just so hard to get to at this stage. You have to go to Barbados and wait at the airport for three hours and take your little puddle jumper, 16-seater, to get to St. Vincent, which is the big island, I said, smaller than Manhattan. The islanders refer to it as the mainland. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, going to the mainland. Uh, 11 miles long. You are getting my my travel dreams stirring here. Uh, This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves, and and we're we're talking with Ferenc Mate, and Ferenc is a a great explorer, and he's a great sailor, and, and he's 
sort of uh, discovered for himself what he calls the Islands of Eden, and he's written a beautiful coffee table book about this, Islands of Eden, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Now, parents, if you're walking down the main street of the, the capital city or the main town, and you've got all this vegetables and fruits, what's it like dinner time? You're just out looking for a restaurant. Are these funky little, you know, colorful, uh, rough wood kind of cafes and eateries, or is there a trendiness there in a kind of a yacht club uh, Elegant. There is absolutely minus trendiness. <laughs> there isn't one trendy restaurant in the place. There isn't. There's one, I think, a KFC or Colonel right. Kentucky Fried Chicken place right. owned by a local. But the rest is little stands with fresh food, either fruit or vegetables. And and it seems like almost there are two kinds of people in uh, in Saint Vincent, at least at the Kingston. Those who buy things and those who sell things. Almost everyone has a little stand, either fruits or vegetables or clothes or. Or hats, but not touristy stuff. Just this is their commercial exchange. You know, there are no big supermarkets or great right, stores. Right. Everything's done on a really human scale. So you grow ten or fifteen things or spices like, like ginger or cinnamon or nutmeg or cloves, and you get your little stand in town and and put your umbrella up and sit there and and have a great time chatting with people. You know, and, and literally hundreds of these little stands and the little rum shops where people hang out and drink. And the little shoe guy has a little stand about the size of two or three phone booths. The, the shoe repair guy, and it's totally human. This kind of is getting into something you wrote. You wrote a very interesting line. Sometimes it takes a while to see the forest from the trees. It happened with me in these islands. You'd been photographing all this gorgeous nature for a month, and then you had a breakthrough. What, what was that breakthrough like? Because you'd been diligently working as a nature photographer, and suddenly you realized a different dimension. Yeah, you know, it's so tempting, and, and I'm used to doing it. I had a book called Autumn in England, Autumn. And, of course, you're shooting waterfalls and leaves and beaches and stuff. And even some houses that are interesting shaped. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that what I really love about this place that makes me feel so at home is the people. You know, even though I'm totally foreign to the land, or they speak English, I felt so at home. There's such a warmth. It's, it's almost indescribable. I mean, from kids up to the older people, the kids all, all wear uniforms to go to school, which is really nice because being fairly poor, it's, you know, and this competition of who mm-hmm. gets better, who wears better clothes and stuff. What's, what's the ethnicity of the people? Do they go back to slave trade? Yeah, most of them. Yeah, it's actually it's interesting. A big part was a slave trade, but there's a huge uh, original Carib population. They were the toughest, the most um, aggressively defensive people the Caribs were. They were the last ones defeated by the English. And in yeah. fact, the English actually took 2,000 of them and very very humanely stuck them on a desert island with no water and no food. Of course, all of them died t- about 10 miles off coast. This is very recent, I mean, a couple hundred years ago. So the people, it's a mix of uh, indigenous Caribbeans and escaped African slaves and then a, a yeah, based, Yeah, that's 90, 90%, you know, and 95%. What do, you call, what do you call the people Vin, Vince, from St. Vincent? Vincentians, which I have, always have trouble pronouncing, even apart from the fact that I mumble. Yeah. <laughs> now, are they kind of like, you know, we think of the Jamaican laid-back pot smokers or beach bums, or are they desperately poor? Are they... Uh, are they speaking English? Uh, do they give you your space, or do you have a lot of people hustling you? Uh, absolutely nobody hustling you. No one. I, there's Rasta guys who have their farms, and you know some grow dough, but most of them grow vegetables. Uh-huh. Uh, the people are just so gentle, and this is what really gets to you that you know even the toughest-looking kid that walks by you and you sort of you know make eye contact or say hi or something very timidly, and they'll come back to you say good afternoon in the warmest tone, oh, you know, and people that. stop and help you everywhere, no matter what you do, and even though I've got this obnoxious camera with me. God, sound, i got to get down here now. Uh, again, this is Travel with Rick I don't Steve. want too many people going there because I'm moving I know, yeah, just, just, uh, just between me <laughs> Tuscany here, is hell in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with Baron Smate. We're talking about the Islands of Eden, his new book, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Uh, our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jennifer's calling in from San Francisco in California. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Thank you. Speaking of uh, not wanting too many people to go there, I'm wondering how the area has changed since the movie Pirates of the Caribbean was filmed there. Well, Jennifer, it's still so hard to get to that uh, hasn't changed much. The set itself is uh, where Johnny Depp sort of swung on or swung on a tower has collapsed, and the buildings are collapsed. These people uh, really have no great incentive to promote and get rich, okay? And they don't need to. They have the world's best climate. They have all the food and the fish and they can possibly ask for. All you need for a, for a house is, you know, four walls and a window with a glass. You can have just shutters. It was really interesting. There was a lady who ran one of the resorts, and there's some very, very great resorts. I mean, we're talking about some of the islands called Mystique, where, you know, the Rolling Stones have a place. And uh, Bequi is fairly affluent in some parts too. But then there's a couple of private islands, Petit St. Vincent and uh, Palm Island, beautiful resorts and extremely well left in, in, in almost their virgin state. 
No, but anyway, the lady who ran as one of these resorts said, well, you know, these people, they're, they're just not ambitious. I don't know what to do. You know, they're wonderful people, but all they're interested in is eating and drinking and dancing and having sex. And I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, is, there, is there more? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. You mean they don't like standing in two hours in a subway waiting for the subway and then going sitting in a cubicle for 10 hours after oh, that? Gee, man. what is wrong with these guys? You know, should <laughs> really bring them awake. Ferenc, you wrote about a tradition of liming. Is that what it is? Liming? Liming? Oh, my God. Yeah, liming. Yeah. And definition of that is getting together, no matter who, age group, sex group, nothing matter. Okay, just get together in some place, the roadside or on a bench. They have these wonderful, like, little bleachers, only about maybe 10 feet long and about three tiers high, so you can actually be close to each other, and then you sit there and talk. But the whole essence of this guy, it's not networking, okay? You've got together just to have fun, just to talk and drink, or maybe play cards, or just just to be with each other, you know, then it's such a... Isn't that interesting? We would network, you know, to get somewhere. With an oh, agenda. my God. <laughs> and the opposite of networking would be St. Vincent and the Grenadines liming. It really is. And it's the amazing thing is, Rick, there's so few people in the you know, Grenadines, it's only about 80,000 or 90,000 altogether. And St. Vincent has about 60,000, and most of them live in Kingston. But the place is always crawling with people. It's like, you know, you go to a suburb here with 80,000 people, you don't see a soul. You know, you can die of starvation or lack of social contact. But there, everybody's out on the street. You know, nobody watches TV. They're all there chatting and talking. That and sounds great. Jennifer, oh, thanks for your wonderful. call. Thank you. Yeah. Also, Ferenc, where would you sleep as, as a visitor? Are there hotels, hostels, guest houses, bed and breakfast? There's some very small hotels. There's a nice hotel called Grandine House. It's an old plantation house on a hilltop in uh, Kingston. It's redone. Beckwe has a great number of small hotels around a very nice harbor, but really funky, well-kept, totally clean, mm-hmm. not luxurious. And it has one large resort, you know, Beckwe Beach Hotel, which is very, very nice, a great beach, and nicely spread out. You don't feel a sense of many people. It's only about 70 rooms. Okay, Ferenc, just uh, we're out of time, but just wrap it up with, you know, be my coach. I've got a, a few days for a, a vacation. Just lay the groundwork. Where do I fly? What kind of a structure am I going to have if I'm if I'm saddled with this, you know, uh, American-style vacation time where I can get away for a week or something? Well, I would advise at least a couple of days, two- or three-day visit, at least to the Big Island, okay? That's St. Vincent. Uh, Kingston itself is worth spending a day in just, just for some of the churches and, of course, the people and the markets and the waterfront. But it has amazing waterfalls and it has, some, it has a beautiful volcano you can hike up. It's about 4,000 feet with fantastic views. And the coastline is just totally dramatic. It's as if being a mountain, it has uh, a lot of little inlets around it or in bays. Beautiful black sand beaches. Then you should go down to Beckway for probably a week. Beckway, a big harbor, mm-hmm. and take a day trip either from there or from the other islands. Or Kanawan is wonderful as an island to visit as well. And then make sure you go to Tobago Keys because I said that it's really, really magical right. in color. And so in, in two weeks, you can you know, really cover a lot of it because right. they're very close together. There's, it's very inexpensive to go a ferry ride between the big island and, and Beckway, which is the farthest distance, costs about $8. It sounds just, if you're a photographer, it just sounds like lots of fun. Oh, it's, it's, Everywhere it's, you it's turn, a no-brainer. Funky local culture, great people, parrots and big flowers and volcanoes. Oh, and the flowers are amazing, yeah. Ferenc Maté, congratulations for inspiring us once again, and congratulations also on a beautiful book, Islands of Eden, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Thanks, Rick, and do come visit me when I am moved down there, would you? <laughs> I sense a little change. Until then, come visit us in Tuscany, I'll never talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Ferenc. Happy travels. Thanks, you guys. Bye. Ferenc Mate has taken some incredible photographs capturing the brilliant colors of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. They're in his photo book called Islands of Eden. His website is ferencmate.com. That's spelled F-E-R-E-N-C-M-A-T-E dot com. In 2003, Sarah Turnbull wrote a bestseller called Almost French about the dreams that came true for her when she moved from Australia to Paris. It's where she met her husband, Frederick. Together, they embarked on a whole new adventure when he took a job in Tahiti. She takes us on her cross-cultural adventures to Polynesia in her latest book, All Good Things. 
Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. You opened the book talking about swimming, just the luxurious underwater miracles, the dazzling underwater seascapes. Take us on a little swim in front of your... Uh, you lived right on the shore in, in Tahiti. What was it like? Actually, we lived on the, on the neighboring island, Morea, which is it's only a 30-minute fast ferry trip across to Tahiti. So my husband worked on Tahiti, and we lived on Morea. And it was idyllic. The, the setting for our home was idyllic. We lived right on the lagoon. Um, literally, our back door was 15 meters from the water's edge. And the lagoon played a really important la- part in our lives, particularly my life. I would get up every morning and I would go for an early morning swim and wade into this water. I was the only one at that hour in the lagoon and and across the strait, so about 15 kilometers away, there was Tahiti and the sun would be rising behind Tahiti. So it was like this enormous sort of backlit Mm. natural pyramid. And I would spend 40 minutes swimming in the lagoon and have it all to myself. And it was really, it was almost, whenever I put my head underwater, I felt like I'd entered another realm. It was just the light, the refracted light patterns underwater, the fish, the sea life, um, the colors, the beauty. It was just, it really was, I was transported. And so when I was, there are some very important water scenes throughout the book, both swimming and scuba diving. And I so wanted when I was writing those parts for my words to capture that beauty. You know, that was my aim to um, recreate (laughs) You did it so amazingly. I mean, it was like the lagoon is your gateway to life, and it was sort of intimately connected with you. You started each day with it. I love when you wrote, the first few seconds underwater are like rebirth. I really don't even Mm. feel wet, just wrapped in softest silk. The unburdening is instantaneous. Tell me more about unburdening being instantaneous. Yes, well... On the one hand, you know, I'm, we're living in this idyllic place and everyone, Tahiti, probably more than anywhere in the world, is synonymous with paradise. Uh, and I kind of examine that in the book and the reality of it. You know, there's the romance of, of any place, whether it be Paris, um, and then there's a the reality. And I guess like, like Paris, um, where I also lived for many years, Tahiti is one of those iconic destinations. It makes people dream it inspires longing. It wasn't that we had longed. We kind of got there just by chance, really. A job offer came up for my husband. We didn't think he would take it. And then and then circumstances led us to accept this job offer and move. That word unburdening is really a reference to those circumstances um, that led us to move there. I think mm-hmm. I think any big move to another place, you know, across to the other side of the world, there's, there's always an element of escape. And um, you don't move across the other side of the world for no reason at all. There's always kind of a search for renewal. And that was certainly our case. Sarah Turnbull is the author of All Good Things, From Paris to Tahiti, Life and Longing. We'll find out what living in Tahiti taught Sarah in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Je m'appelle Patrick Noël, mon voyage exclusif l'eau l'île Maurice dans l'océan Indien. And that was Creole for I'm Patrick Noël and I will travel with Rick Steves to Mauritius, 500 kilometers from Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. Mon nom c'est Patrick Noël, mon voyage avec Rick Steves et me descend l'eau l'île Maurice dans l'océan Indien. Cool. Our island adventures today on Travel with Rick Steves are taking us to Tahiti right now with Sarah Turnbull. In her bestseller, Almost French, Sarah explains the learning curve a hang-loose Aussie had to go through to adjust to living in Paris and how to navigate the expectations and formalities of French culture. A decade later, in her book All Good Things, she shares the details of her married life with Parisian lawyer Frédéric, their desire to start a family, and the impact living in Tahiti had on their lives. And Sarah, when you you were at a point in your life where you were interested in having a transition, tell us about that and how that relates to mm. Tahiti. So we had been living in Paris. I'd been living in Paris with my husband for you know almost 10 years at that point. When this, he was offered a job in Tahiti, we'd had no plans at that point to leave Paris. And so our initial reaction was no. Um, you know, we'd never uh, thought of visiting Tahiti, in fact, despite its you know, wonderful reputation, let alone living there. 
But at that time, we were also going through a number of things in our personal lives. And, and the big one was that we'd been trying to have a child for uh, a number of years. We'd been having infertility treatment and we'd been unsuccessful. And so the more we thought about the Tahiti option, the more it appealed. And I think part of that was we just needed a fresh start. Mm. Um, we found out that there were no um, infertility services in Tahiti. And far from putting us off, it actually made us think, well, maybe it's time for a real change. You know, we've, we've tried science and it hasn't worked. So we thought we'll put our faith in Mother Nature. Um, it wasn't that we went around telling people that, you know, that was why we were moving to Tahiti, but it certainly was part of it. Um, I had two goals. One was to write a book, to write my first novel while we were living on the island. I thought that would be a perfect place to write a book, in no distractions. And the other was to have a baby. And uh, part of me thought, well, uh, you know, a beautiful, lush, fertile island would be the perfect place to conceive a child naturally. So we certainly went with our little bag of dreams. And? Well, <laughs> one of those goals I achieved. Um, yeah, look, it was, we ended up having a, I'm, I'm not spoiling it for anyone. I'm dying for that. Did you have your baby? <laughs> yeah, well, look, we do have a seven, now seven-year-old son. That's so we great. ended up having a child in, in Tahiti. I must say it was science in the end that helped us. I do remember the part in your book, though, Sarah, when you, you opened the book with this great swimming thing in the, in the magical lagoon, and then you flash back to the church in Paris where you decided, I'm not going to buy the one-euro candle. I'm not going to buy the two-euro candle. You actually bought the 10-euro candle, <laughs> which promised to yeah. burn for nine days. That's right. So, that's right. I so thought... what did you pray for? Yeah, well, look, that was back in Paris when we were going through all the infertility treatment and, and getting increasingly sort of d desperate, I guess, even though on to friends and family it looked like we were coping very well and I was coping mm -hmm. very well. Mm -hmm. I think probably underneath the surface I wasn't coping as well as I thought. So, yeah, I would go to church and I felt that, well, you know, God and I weren't really very well acquainted. So uh, perhaps I, it was wise if I bought the 10 euro candle to make an impression if I was going to have my prayer listened to. There's a lesson there, the 10 euro candle. Okay, so let's go back to Tahiti now. If I'm just dreaming about going to Tahiti, first of all, it's a French colony, right? I mean, it, it's part of France? Yes, it is. It's a French territory. It's, it was colonized and it's got a lot of autonomy so there are many things that are just decided by French Polynesia itself, but it is definitely you know, the main language. The official language is French. So they're speaking French. The people there are French citizens with full civil and political exactly. rights? Exactly. They've got all the rights of French citizens. They're, of course, Polynesians. They're islanders. So you've got this quite wonderful mix of, and sometimes a little bit surreal mix of cultures. You know, you'd go to cafes there hmm. and it would be really hot and would be sitting there and I'd order a you know, lovely Tahitian raw tuna salad or something light like that. A lot of the Tahitians would be eating bœuf bourguignon mm. or some, mm. some really hearty, you know, cassoulet or some, some really hearty, wintry French dish. So you wrote about that. You've got this elegant French sort of overlay uh, with all the formality of a French dinner party. And then you've also got the casual Polynesian shoes off suckling pig kind of dining. But, Sarah, you're an Australian now. Can you get Vegemite there? That's the big question. No, <laughs> there was no Vegemite there, though. No, I'm afraid. But I, I, I had learned to live without Vegemite before that. There was no <laughs> Vegemite really in Paris either. So I had my own little stock, I think. But we were very lucky where we lived. I, you know, it can be very hard in a place like French Polynesia, where, of course, there naturally there are resentments towards pulpa, as they call white Europeans, which, you know, it's mainly French people there. Popa, so that's Popa like, is, uh, that's, is that a, a little bit of a negative connotation? No, it's not pejorative, and everyone uses it. Um, uh -huh. Of course, they do have a little, Polynesians love to laugh and, and make fun jokes, with and one of the Europeans, things they love yeah. to have fun <laughs> with is, is Popa, so they do. And, and we were part of that community, which is quite transient. It's, you know, there are a lot of comings and goings. Most French people who go there, either with the government right. or an organization, are only there for a couple of years. So. Oh, okay. Polynesians aren't necessarily interested in befriending the latest arrivals. Why would they be? They know you're going to go, and they've seen this all before. We were very lucky. We lived on Morea. We lived in a neighborhood that was very Polynesian, mm -hmm. and we were surrounded by members of the one family, and they were just gorgeous. We spent Christmases with them. We spent you know, Mother's Day, any sort of family celebrations. They were a huge part of our lives, and I always felt extraordinarily grateful for that 
because we needed them, mm-hmm. but they didn't need us. You know, they had their own mm-hmm. extended family all around them. And so it was, for us, it was a wonderful gift. Sarah Turnbull is the author of Almost French. Her latest book, All Good Things, tells us how she navigated yet another cultural challenge when she and her French husband relocated to Tahiti. All Good Things is published by Gotham Books. Sarah, when you're thinking about getting away from it all, the main what's the main town of Tahiti? It's Papa Papieti. Papieti. Yeah, Papieti. Now that's far away, but you lived even one step beyond that. How did you feel cut off from the world, and, and was that a good thing or was it a frustrating thing? It was both. You know, one thing that when we first arrived there, people, a number of French people said to me, tu viens face à toi-même sur une île, which means you come face to face with yourself on an island. And initially I was a bit dismissive, but in fact you do. So I found our islands are interesting places. You know, on the one hand, they're associated with paradise, you know, these perfect mini-worlds cut off from the wider world and all its problems. And on the other hand, there's another association in, in our imaginations, I think, and that is the association with prison, really, you know, um, mm. and being cut off. As Thurston Clark writes very aptly in his book, Searching for Paradise, Every island is a potential Alcatraz. And I felt those two aspects of islands very keenly, you know, every day living on Morea. Um, every day when I went for my swim, I was confronted and, and rejoiced in the, in the whole sort of paradise around me, the idyllic setting and the natural beauty. But on the other hand, I felt really cut off. It's quite lonely. And I was working from home. Frederick would go over to Papieti early each morning and spend the next 12 hours working on another island. And I would be there at my desk trying to write my historical novel set in 19th century Brittany. (laughs) So there you were stranded in, in paradise, really, with the lagoon in front of you where you got so much joy swimming and fabulous freedom. But you wrote about how you kind of struggled with when you have fabulous freedom, you you have a need for boundaries and structure. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. You know, I had this whole lagoon to myself. I could have swum anywhere. Um, Out to the reef, which was about 800 meters from the shore, there was an islet sort of to the right, which was a good swimming distance. And the first thing I did really was I, I mapped out a route in the lagoon. And I think probably only twice did I strike out in a different direction. You know, I swam that route in the lagoon as if I was in a swimming lane. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think when you're given all this freedom, you kind of need routine and structure. And I would also, um, I drew up timetables for myself, a daily schedule. The morning swim was the first thing on my daily schedule. And, you know, then I would have time for writing exercises and then writing and So it's funny how, yeah, when you're given this freedom, as much as you love it, you know you need, as a human being, you need some structure in your life. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. On Travel with Rick Steves, the world's our classroom, and today our classroom is paradise in the South Pacific. Tahiti, we're speaking with Sarah Turnbull. Her book is All Good Things, the story of her life from Paris to Tahiti. And uh, Sarah, you, you talked about being so on an island apart from the rest of the world, but then you described going out to see your first atoll. Tell us about going out into the Pacific to find, what was it called, Tikihau? Yes, Tikihau is the first one we see from the plane. And then we, we were en route to Fakarava. It's, I'd never seen anything like it. In fact, I quote James Michener in the book, and he said something, I can't remember his exact words, but it was, you know, there are certain patterns of beauty in the world that, that capture the mind forever or impress, you know, the mind forever. And for him, he was writing about atolls when he wrote that. And that was certainly the way it was for me. You know, I I think the best way to describe it was it looked like a smoke ring on this vast ocean plain. You know, this this tiny sort of bracelet, um, pale, sandy bracelet that looked like it might get washed away at any moment or blown away. You know, you're talking about something incredibly narrow and and very vulnerable and i thought there was just something astonishing and ridiculous and marvelous about it and that sort of wonder i never lost that wonder you know even when we landed on the atoll and atolls are, are fascinating in that on the one side you've got of them you've got the the interior sea the big lagoon 
And in Thakarava, it's a very big lagoon, so it's a, it's a um, sort of vast interior sea. And that's quite calm, and all the houses are on that side, and it's quite peaceful and tranquil. And then on the other side, you've got the full force of the ocean mm. hitting the atoll. So it's a little bit schizophrenic, really. It's On one side, you've got this sense of tranquility and, and safety, mm-hmm. and on the other, you've got this this menace. You know, it's that fragility. You're talking about the smoke ring when you look down at it from an airplane. It's one one storm, one big wave, one meter of rise in the ocean level, and, and that whole society is, is gone. Yeah, and you really do sense that. I mean, I think Fakarava at its highest point is three meters or something above mm. sea level. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. And so I think that adds to the sense of, of wonder and beauty that these places, they probably won't exist in the future. So I was just enchanted by that. And I also, throughout the book, woven into that is the story of Henri Matisse, because he, um, when we moved to French Polynesia, the only artist I knew had any connection with the place was Paul Gauguin, of course. But Henri Matisse went to French Polynesia, and although he was kind of bored for a lot of the time and he was not very impressed with Papietti, what saved his trip to the territory was a side voyage he made Mm. to Fakarava Mm. and the atolls and there he fell in love with the lagoon and the colours and he was like this sort of mad scientist wearing these island fashioned wood framed goggles underwater with his you know head down bum up studying Mm. the the patterns and the light and the colours and and the sea life all the things that struck me. So I thought a lot about Henri Matisse while we were there too. Sarah, when you think about the artists that have found inspiration in Tahiti, Paul Gauguin and Matisse, you've also got this cultural style, uh, I think it's called fu, which is a, a Tahitian expression for a kind of a state of depression that could be seen as laziness, but just, and then there's the less, or like laissez-faire, right, where people just let it go and take it easy and work for today or live for today. Talk about few and talk about less. It's a little Tahitian word, but they use it a lot. They'll say, um, mixing it with French, you know, j'étais few, je suis few, I was few, or I am few. And it, it has a range of meanings. It can mean anything from uh, I was fed up or over it or over everything to, um, you know, deeply depressed. You know, it, it can be a, quite a serious state. And it can be a reason why people don't get out of bed in the morning, why they don't go to work for a couple of weeks, why they take off to a, an outer island and abandon family and kids and wife. And the, the thing that really struck me about it was the way they just kind of accepted it and almost embraced it. You know, I think we'd be running to a, mm. a, a therapist to get antidepressants or some sort of medication. They're just low energy for a while, and then you go out to the, the far reach of the island and, and just... Yeah. Uh, and then there's the live for today, uh, laissez-faire approach uh, that is, I guess, part of the culture also. You know, I think in the in the West, perhaps, the pursuit of perfect happiness has almost replaced the old search for paradise. I mean, there's so much about happiness now, and it's become this huge industry. And what really struck me there was they don't expect to be perfectly happy all the time. They're not mm. on this big search for happiness. Um, they know that sometimes in life you just feel few, and when you feel few, mm. you just don't get out of bed. You know, it's mm. as simple as that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Sarah Turnbull. Her book is called All Good Things, the story of her life from Paris to Tahiti. And Sarah, we're talking about your need uh, to find some sort of uh, fertility as you struggled with that in Paris and you moved to the slower pace of life with surrounded by the natural fertility of Tahiti and you had your son. You gave him a Tahitian middle name. Uh, tell us why and tell us what living on Tahiti, you hope you can teach your son, what, what he can come away with. So our son, yeah, he was born there. He was actually conceived in Australia with the help of um, scientists here and then born in Vacan Tahiti. And he has got a Tahitian middle name, Orama. So his name is Oliver Orama. Look, the reason we did that, that, it's a little bit controversial. Some people think that, you know, in giving French people and foreigners, giving their children in uh, French Polynesia a Polynesian name is a, sort of a form of appropriation. Other people say it's not at all. It's just a wonderful example of how, you know, the cultural mixes and, and, and the strength of some Polynesian see it as a strength of the, of the Polynesian culture that we're sort of adopting these things. For us, it wasn't really one or the other. It was... We felt that we wanted, we knew we were leaving Tahiti and we wanted to kind of 
acknowledge that that past that you know that place where he was born where he may not have many connections but but at least it would be there in his name and he would forever have to explain to people when he gave his name oh yeah well my parents gave me a Tahitian name because I was born in Tahiti and for us it was really in a way more a question of honoring that place that for us had in a way given us this baby. What has Tahiti given you that you hope your son will benefit from? Well, I don't know whether I could say that I'm sort of a serene enough person to say that, you know, I've taken on all the aspects of few. I don't think I'm that sort of person, but I certainly think that has influenced me. I certainly think living on an island, you do learn a lot about yourself. You come face to face with your own strengths and your own weaknesses and it made me realize that I need to be somewhere where I'm very stimulated and surrounded by friends that's really important to me Um, I guess in terms of one of the things I've brought away from there and hopefully will pass on to Oliver a love of color Tahitians love color and the bolder and the brasher the better Um, they put sort of clashing colors together and one of our neighbors used to come around to our place and she'd look at some of our furniture in these sort of pale colors or faded colors and she'd just fold her arms and say it's really sad isn't it and it bothered her terribly that we could have you know such and she would when she got to know us better she would start rummaging in my drawers and she'd pull out these silk scarves and and sarongs and any bit of bright fabric she could get her hands on and she would make a patchwork of color and put it over our old faded sofa and stand back and say it looks happier now doesn't it and i love that it's that love of bold color i think i've taken one of the things that i've i've taken with me and i know our home is a lot a lot brighter than it ever was before sarah turnbull author of all good things thanks so much for sharing your experience from paris all the way to tahiti thank you very much Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wolner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and ABC Radio in Sydney for their help this week. There's more to each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.